Welcome to another episode of Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem, sponsored by the Yellowstone Wildlife Sanctuary in Red Lodge, Montana. When wild animals of the Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem cannot be released back into the wild, when finding a permanent home is literally a life or death matter, that's when the Yellowstone Wildlife Sanctuary steps in to provide their forever home. The sanctuary's mission also includes conservation education programs like this podcast. Yellowstone Wildlife Sanctuary is a 501c3 nonprofit and is not affiliated with or funded by Yellowstone National Park or the Park Service. How can you help? Visit YellowstoneWildlifeSanctuary.org and use the donate button or shop the online store. My name is Gary Robson and this is my co-host, Eden Wondrett. Hi, I'm Eden. Today we'll be talking about wildlife laws and accreditation. These laws are complicated, but they are a very important part of wildlife management and animal welfare. A question that comes up constantly is who can keep animals in captivity? Can you trap a bunch of wild animals, put them on display, and call yourself a zoo? Well, it depends. Running a zoo or a wildlife sanctuary requires appropriate permits and license, and that doesn't mean a business license from the city. In 1966, the United States passed the first version of the Animal Welfare Act, which created standards for care and handling of certain animals. The original version was very limited, affecting only certain types of dealers, breeders, and research labs. It's been amended eight times since then, and now mandates proper diets, enrichment, housing, transportation, veterinary care, and more for most captive animals. It also outlaws animal fighting. To keep or display wild animals, a facility has to be licensed by the USDA's Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service, which published the Animal Welfare Act and associated regulations in a 250-page book that is usually called the Blue Book. USDA APHIS also conducts annual surprise inspections, where violations can mean losing your Class C license, which results in having your facility shut down if you don't fix the problems quickly. Historically, USDA's authority only extended to mammals, although they are developing standards for birds now, which will be implemented soon. But USDA isn't the only federal agency overlooking sanctuaries and zoos, right Eden? Right. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is responsible for permits relating to the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. Most birds in the U.S. are covered under the act, and unless you have the appropriate permits from USFW, you can't keep the birds or even bird parts like feathers. But even the Migratory Bird Permit doesn't cover everything, right? There are always exceptions, like eagles. The requirements to keep bald and golden eagles are very strict. Without special eagle permits, you can't have an eagle dead or alive, or eagle nests and eggs. Endangered species are complicated too, and international treaties can get involved there. Unless it's part of a sanctioned breeding and reintroduction program, it's extremely hard for a facility to get permits to have endangered species. Sometimes it goes the other way though, like with invasive species. Those are animal species in areas they don't normally live in. Sometimes they can come into an area accidentally, like the invasive mussels causing so many problems in Montana lakes. They just rode in on boats that weren't properly cleaned off after a trip. Sometimes they're brought in on purpose, like the cane toads in Australia. The government isn't working to protect those, right Gary? Not only are invasive species often prohibited as pets, the federal government may take an active part in killing them off. European starlings are considered serious pests now, but they were brought to the U.S. and released into Central Park in New York City on purpose. Now they cause hundreds of millions of dollars in damage and sometimes even lives. 
1960, a Lockheed L-188 Electra airplane sucked a flock of starlings into its engines and crashed, killing 62 people. The USDA kills off millions of starlings every year and even publishes a technical report showing farmers and ranchers how to kill them themselves. Just in case that isn't complicated enough, every state has its own set of regulations to work with. Rules vary wildly and may seem arbitrary. Why does Arizona allow pet kangaroos but not bison? Why does California allow camels but not zebras? You have to check your state's rules. They may have changed between when we recorded this podcast and when you're listening to it. Keeping wild or exotic animals often requires state permits in addition to federal permits, and they can be very specific. Vermont, for example, requires a permit to have a pet anaconda, but not an alligator. Most states require permits for venomous snakes, if they're allowed at all. In the last year and a half, we've seen a flurry of laws based around a disease, COVID-19. Sometimes animal-related laws change depending on animal diseases. At the moment, it's against the law to have a pet raccoon in 34 states. You can have a pet raccoon in Wyoming, but not Montana, for example. This is because of a Montana law about rabies control. It says that a person may not possess an animal that's known to be capable of transmitting rabies, with some exceptions. Those include any animal, quote, contained in a zoological exhibition in a manner that it may not come in physical contact with members of the public or acquired by an educational institution for scientific research, end of quote. The law defines rabies vectors as skunks, foxes, raccoons, and bats, even though there hasn't been a positive rabies test in a raccoon in Montana in over 10 years. Cervids, deer, elk, and moose, are already complicated. As some states regulate captive deer as livestock, some consider them wildlife, and some ban captive deer entirely. In states where chronic wasting disease is a problem, even wildlife sanctuaries like ours can no longer keep deer. Episode 35 of Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem talked about CWD in depth. But what about healthy wild animals? Can a zoo or wildlife sanctuary just catch a wild animal and put it on display? Again, this varies from state to state. In Montana, the law says that wildlife sanctuaries and zoos can't capture healthy wild animals unless they've been deemed non-releasable due to things like injury or human conflict. Depending on what state you're in, other rules may apply, including keeping the animal in the state where it is captured. Animals at YWS that came from Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks are not our animals, but remain property of the state of Montana. Accreditation is a process where you demonstrate to an accrediting body, often a professional association, that you meet a set of standards. In the world of animal sanctuaries, there are four different accrediting bodies where we could apply for accreditation. It can be a lengthy and complicated process, and meeting all the standards can get very expensive. There are about 2,800 animal exhibitors licensed by the USDA. Less than a quarter of them are accredited, and cost is one of the reasons. Why would it be so expensive? A facility that wants to become accredited may find itself having to do a lot of physical updates to meet the accrediting body's standards. Bigger enclosures, stronger fences, better safety equipment, more frequent vet checkups. It can really add up. The application process alone can take a significant amount of time. 
With all of the required attachments and backup documents, our application was 153 pages long. For more about accreditation, let's turn to an expert. Vernon Weir is the director of the American Sanctuary Association. Thanks for joining us today, Vernon. Just oh, you're welcome. <laughs> how does the process of becoming accredited affect an animal sanctuary? Does it make the sanctuary a better place? Well, I wouldn't say it makes them a better place because, first of all, we don't accredit any places that aren't good places in the first place. You know, it's a two-step process. First, you submit all the paperwork, and, you know, we, we look at your application and your permits and your veterinary references and board members and financial records, you know, things like that. And then if you meet our standards at that point, then we do a site visit to verify that the animal care and housing is all good. You know, the condition of the animals are good. If so if you don't meet certain standards that we've set for accredited sanctuaries, you know, you wouldn't be accredited. We may find some areas that could use some improvement and, you know, and still accredit the sanctuary. And we always let them know, you know, that it would be best if you do A, B, and C. But, you know, I wouldn't say that it makes them a better place. Now, there are advantages to becoming accredited because I get calls every year from potential donors that are asking me specifically about this or that sanctuary. Is this a good place to make a donation? Is it a true, legitimate sanctuary? And I get calls from rescue groups uh, wanting to place an animal, and they want to know that it's a good place before they put an animal there. And, of course, the sanctuary can display our logo on any of their literature or their website or whatever, which lets the public know that you are accredited and therefore have been independently verified to meet certain standards for housing and care. So really, what improves a sanctuary is getting ready for the accreditation in the first place. Well, I would say so. I would imagine those sanctuaries, they, they know what our standards are you know, before they apply. You know, in most cases, it would take a sanctuary, if it, if it was really a rundown place, it would take them an awful long time and an awful lot of work and money to bring it up to standards so we would approve it when we got there. So you mentioned talking to donors and talking to rescue operations that are getting ready to place an animal. What about visitors that are coming in maybe to take a tour? Should they care whether a zoo or aquarium or sanctuary they want to visit is accredited or not? Well, I would say generally, yes. I mean, the, there are zoos all over the country that are not uh, American Zoological Association accredited. And you have to wonder why. You know, is it the animal care? Is it the housing, the veterinary care? You know, what is the reason that they're not ACA accredited? I will say this about sanctuaries. There are sanctuaries in this country, because they're all over the place, that might qualify for ASA accreditation, but either they don't know about us or we don't know about them, and they've never applied. You know, I can think of one case, for example, a, a place that's a good place, 
that they just don't want to be part of any kind of an association. So it's kind of hard for the individual out there to, to say if they're not accredited by ASA, you know, should they be visited, should they support them and so forth. And, you know, my advice would be go there and look, you know, and see. Are the animals in good shape? Are they well cared for? Do they have suitable housing? Does the public get to play with the animals? Things that we would discourage, of course. And if it looks like a good place, let us know, and we'll send them an invitation to be accredited. So you can't always say for sure with a a sanctuary, because there's no law that says you have to be accredited. How did the American Sanctuary Association come to be? Well, there were three sanctuaries uh, directors in Texas, and they were concerned about the fact that all over the country there were places that called themselves a sanctuary. Some even had nonprofit tax-exempt status, and they'd say they were a sanctuary. And they would take donations from the public based on, you know, sad stories and things of that nature that they had took in this animal, took in that animal. But behind the scenes, they were anything but a sanctuary. They were engaged in breeding, buying, selling, trading, you name it. Some of them were even known for killing animals to use their fur. And, you know, the public was basically being duped. It was a scam operation in order to get donations for their work. And they weren't really running a sanctuary at all. They just called themselves a sanctuary because the word sanctuary is also another situation that isn't actually defined in the law. So any place can call themselves a sanctuary. So they said, you know, enough's enough. We need to do something here so the public knows what place is a true sanctuary and meets certain guidelines and standards and behavior and policies and those that are not. So they formed the American Sanctuary Association. That was in 1998. And they um, got their incorporation papers. They got their 501c3 permit. Then in 1999, they hired me to be the director. The thing of it is, I, I actually started working in the animal welfare movement in 1980. And I used to attend a lot of national conferences where organizations from all over the country would get together. And I knew a lot of those sanctuary directors. So they hired me to run the association, and I started in 1999. For the first couple of years, it was really just a part-time job because we were new, didn't have a lot of sanctuaries accredited, and didn't have a lot of animal rescues to try to help with. But as we became more familiar to people and other sanctuaries, we grew. And so that basically, you know, is a short story of how ASA got started. It was to distinguish the good places from the junk. That makes sense. And at the time, there was no association. There was no place in this country that did accredit sanctuaries. That's correct. That's right. We were the first. So we were talking earlier about laws and how every state has their own wildlife and animal welfare laws. And then 
we have federal umbrellas like the Animal Welfare Act and the Migratory Bird Treaty Act sitting over top of all of it. And then there are international treaties for how we work with endangered species as well. How does this affect your ability to work with member sanctuaries when everybody has different rules? Well, first of all, you know, state and federal animal welfare rules, as you call them, you know, they're state welfare departments, state fish and game departments, federal, like the USDA, those organizations all have standards and guidelines that are less than ours. So we don't really have a conflict there. You know, because we we require in you know most every case more than they do. The only time we get into you know a difficult situation is that we do, of course, many times when it comes to native wildlife, we have to have a a state approval to move a non-releasable native wild animal from one state to another, and then you have to have an import permit from the state wildlife department in the state that the animal is going to. So it gets to be a little bit of a headache and a little bit of extra paperwork and take more time. And it's even more complicated under the Migratory Bird Treaty Act because when it comes to birds, the permits are much harder to get. Their policy is basically this, is if the bird is not releasable, then they should be euthanized, period. But they don't necessarily have to be euthanized, you know, if the bird is not suffering, but for one reason or another can't be released into the wild, then they could be kept for educational purposes, you know, according to the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. But what if I need to move that bird? It's just a big headache when it comes to birds when you're dealing with them. But fortunately... That doesn't happen, but a few times a year that I have to deal with that. And many times it's the sanctuary that's dealing with them instead of me. But other than that, it's not really a problem. I've gotten along well with all these state and federal agents. And you just have to remember where they're coming from. These are organizations that generally promote the use of animals. They do that for a living. You know, it may be hunting, maybe trapping, maybe animals for entertainment or display. They're not interested in the welfare of the individual animal that you're trying to save. They're interested in population groups. But that's okay. I mean, we we get along with them anyway, and they work very well with our organization. So does that kind of cover that? <laughs> It does indeed. And uh, just to wrap up, you mentioned that there are sanctuaries out there that don't know about ASA, uh, sanctuaries that you don't know about. Uh, if somebody listening to the podcast today is involved with a sanctuary or um, knows of a sanctuary that may benefit, how do they get in touch with you? We have a brand new website. It's uh, americansanctuaries.org. And my name and email address is there, my mailing address is there, and my phone number is there. Thank you for joining us, Vernon. Gary mentioned earlier that there are four accrediting bodies in the U.S. that a sanctuary or zoo can consider. So let's take a quick look at those. There is the AZA, which is the Association of Zoos and Aquariums, and this was founded in 1924. And currently, 
241 zoos have this accreditation. There's also the Zoological Association of America, which can be easily confused. That is the ZAA. And that one was founded in 2005 and has 60 accredited zoos. There are also accreditations for sanctuaries, like the American Sanctuary Association, the ASA, and that was founded in 1998. And currently there are 53 accredited sanctuaries. And there's the Global Federation of Animal Sanctuaries, GFAS, which was founded in 2007. And there are 204 sanctuaries with that accreditation. So why do we have four different groups? What's the difference between them? They all serve different purposes. Although zoos and animal sanctuaries both keep animals and generally have conservation education programs, there are a lot of differences. It's possible to be accredited by more than one organization, and some facilities are, but there are major differences in what they look for and what they require. For example, AZA accredits both for-profit and non-profit facilities. ASA requires facilities to be 501c3 nonprofits. ZAA allows physical contact between animals and guests. GFAS, or GFAS, forbids it. In fact, GFAS limits guests to escorted, guided tours only. AZA has organized breeding programs. GFAS and ASA both prohibit breeding. ZAA and AZA facilities can buy and sell animals. GFAS and ASA facilities cannot. For us, one of the biggest differences is enclosure requirements. All four organizations require members to follow Animal Welfare Act rules and USDA guidelines for humane animal care, but they don't always have their own specifications for all types of habitats. Take mountain lions, for example. ASA doesn't have specific rules for mountain lion enclosures, so we looked to the other three organizations for guidelines on the new habitats we're designing. AZA doesn't have guidelines specifically for mountain lions, but they do cover jaguars, so we used those. For one or two mountain lions, ZAA requires 400 square feet. That's a 20 by 20 enclosure. AZA specifies 1,000 square feet, and GFAS requires 1,200 square feet, triple what ZAA calls for. Some of the organizations are much stricter about other things, too. ZAA has come under fire recently for accrediting roadside zoos in private for-profit breeding facilities for exotic animals, which organizations with strong animal welfare missions oppose. Wayne Paselli, when he was president of the Humane Society of the United States, spoke favorably about AZA, but said that ZAA works to block legislation to ban private ownership of dangerous wild animals and even to weaken the Endangered Species Act. The concept of accrediting wildlife sanctuaries and zoos is fairly new in this country. AZA may have been founded almost 100 years ago, but they didn't begin accrediting zoos until 1974. When Montana's wildlife-related laws were written, there were no wildlife sanctuaries in the state, and AZA was the only relevant accrediting agency. And so, the law said the State Wildlife Rehabilitation Center operated by Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks, after declaring an animal non-releasable, was only allowed to transfer that animal to an AZA-accredited facility. For years, there was only one AZA-accredited facility in the state. Every time FWP wanted to transfer an animal to the Yellowstone Wildlife Sanctuary or Zoo Montana, 
it required special exceptions. Those did happen from time to time. Our sanctuary received a number of animals from the state, but it was a real pain in the neck. On top of that, our sanctuary was operating under a zoo license, even though we're not a zoo, because the state didn't have a sanctuary license. This was something Gary wanted to change. Yes, it was. So I downloaded the pertinent laws, uh, Montana Code Annotated, Title 87, Chapter 4, Part 8, if you're interested, and marked them up to allow for specific licensing of sanctuaries and to accept ASA and GFAS as accrediting bodies. When last year's legislative session began, I approached our local state representative and asked for his help. He agreed to sponsor the changes, and thus was born Montana House Bill 305. The process was surprisingly quick once the bill was drafted, although I guess it has to be in a state where our legislature only meets for four months every other year. Uh, It was introduced on February 3rd, passed through the appropriate committee, amended, passed by the House 98-2, to passed by the Senate 36-13, to and signed into law on April 16th, a little over two months later. In August, we received our first transfer from the state of Montana under the new law, a red-tailed hawk that can't fly due to a broken wing that didn't heal properly. As simple as it sounds, there was a lot involved in making this happen. We had support from Zoo Montana, ASA, GFAS, and others. Speaking of Zoo Montana, we have Executive Director Jeff Ewelt on the line to chat a bit about accreditation and laws. Jeff, when you took the reins at Zoo Montana, you made regaining AZA accreditation one of your top goals. Why was that important to you? Yeah, you know, Gary, so I I think that accreditation in in several forms, I know we'll talk about this a little bit later, but it, for me, it shows the public that we are serious, that we are dedicated to what it is we are tasked to do, and that's care for wildlife. Accreditation kind of gives folks the idea that, you know, we are on the up and up. Uh, we are doing things right in terms of not only animal care, but a lot of the behind the scenes stuff that people don't even know go into running an animal facility. When somebody sees an accrediting body at the front or the end of our, our name, it tells them that, okay, these guys are doing it right. They, you know, they went through the effort of becoming accredited, which, you know, it doesn't matter what accrediting body it is. It, it can be a difficult task to say the least. Um, so it's just a gold stamp of approval. And because Zoo Montana had that accreditation in the past and we lost that, I felt obligated that we had to bring that back to truly gain the trust of our donors and um, those that, you know, were providing us with these animals that had no other place to go. And so overall, it was that gold stamp approval that we were really looking for. That means a lot with a zoo, an aquarium, a wildlife sanctuary, your peers really care. They look at, gee, do we want to transfer an animal to this place? Oh, they're accredited. Okay. We know they meet the standards. Should a visitor care? I think they should. I really do. And the reason I say that is we've all you know, heard at least or have seen uh, the documentary, the, the Tiger King and, and Joe Exotic. I'm just using him as a, as a name. But you and I both know that there are so many facilities in this country that are just like that facility. It is a sad state of affairs, you know, and those facilities will never be able to get to the point where they're an accredited institution. And so I think what accreditation does, you know, whether it's, you know, GFS or, or, or AZA or whatever it may be, tells those visitors, okay, this is a reputable organization. They are not here to make money. They are here specifically for those animals a task 
for the education of those animals and or uh, wildlife in general and the conservation piece of it as well. You've got to talk about that. So yes, I think accreditation is going to tell the guests uh, in a very simple way that th this organization is doing things as they should. They're not just an organization to exploit wildlife, exploit animals that are there just to make money. Every state has their own wildlife and animal welfare laws. And then we have federal umbrellas like the Animal Welfare Act and international like the Migratory Bird Treaty Act sitting over top of all of those. How does this affect your ability to work with other facilities, especially out of state partners? Yeah, honestly, it, it doesn't affect us that negatively or po positively. It's, it's kind of a moot subject for us. And the reason I say that is that because we are um, a reputable organization with an accrediting body, working with U.S. Fish and Wildlife, Fish, Wildlife and Parks and other institutions, it just kind of puts us in a category that, okay, these guys are vetted. They are doing it right. They went through the, the, the standards that they need to become accredited. And so that just kind of puts a lot of that initial, and not just paperwork, but discussion at rest and, and kind of moves us a little bit to the front of the line uh, where we don't have to worry about that aspect of things. Quite honestly, I do think those laws, uh, you know, they help us, any of any organization, um, in terms of working hand in hand with the public that may may not be doing things right. Uh, people that, like you talked about, maybe people that are garnering animals for their home, you know, going out and catching a wild bird or shooting birds in their backyard. There are federal laws, international laws, like you said, that are prohibit that. And so it gives us a great sounding board, a great excuse, if that's the word you want to use, to <laughs> Oh, they may not be doing things right. Um, so I think overall, those laws are there to protect animals. And I think it's our obligation as, you know, organization directors to help enforce those rules and regs. Um, they're there for a reason. And quite honestly, Gary, I think that there is room in this country, in our state especially, to really strengthen some of those rules. I mean, we all know big cat ownership needs to end in this country. You know, nobody needs a tiger or a mountain lion in their backyard. It's just, it is an animal that somebody should not have as a pet. I don't care how cool they are. An animal like that does not belong in a, you know, in, in a backyard setting. So I think there's room for improvement, certainly. And I think, you know, those of us in the business get that. And I think you will see, you are seeing legislation coming down the pipeline that will change that. Um, but overall, I think those laws are, are there to, to help wildlife, as are we. And so therefore, I, I think it's only for the best that they, uh, they continue to enforce them. The complications come into things like raccoons, for example. Uh, it is illegal to have a raccoon as a pet in the state of Montana, but we're very close to the border here and 30 miles away in Wyoming, it's perfectly legal. And there are a lot of people that aren't aware that that law changes at the state line. I've found in transporting large and dangerous animals, to use the trade term, it can take permits in each state that you pass through. Does this just become, you've been at this longer than I have, does this just become routine after a while? 
It, it really does. Yeah. And so, you know, anytime that we're you know, moving an animal or bringing an animal in, we know going into it, okay, where are we going? Who do we need to talk to? What state vets do we need to talk to? You know, and as a courtesy, we always let, you know, the um, Fish, Wildlife and Parks, whatever their comparable name is in each state, know uh, that an animal is being transported. On top of that, one of the things that we also do is we let any other animal facility in that region know. Um, that way, if we have an emergency, we can look to them as backup. Hey, you know, we might be driving through, you know, North Dakota. Maybe we're going up past Minot. I'll let Minot, you know, the zoo up there know, hey, we're coming through, you know, just to let you know in case something's up, we need, we may need your help. And so that is something that we see that courtesy really is, is zoo wide. You're going to see that in a lot of facilities. I'm sure sanctuaries are no, are no different, obviously. But yeah, it just becomes part of the routine. We want to make sure we're abiding by the law. Um, we want to make sure we're doing things right. And so it's just part of the, uh, the process. It's cumbersome, don't get me wrong, but that's a good thing. It should be cumbersome and it should be difficult because we want to make sure that things are being done right for these animals. And you bring up a really good point. Uh, an advantage to accreditation is the network that comes with it as well. So that when somebody calls and says, can you do this? Can you help us with this? You have a network in place and you say, well, I can't, but I know someone who can. We were talking about transporting animals, just all of us being able to call each other and say, hey, do you have a, a wolf crate that we could borrow for the week? That network is incredibly important. Incredibly important. And if you ask me, I think, you know, obviously the public aspect of it is big, but that networking is, I think, one of the most important things of being accredited. Um, because, yeah, you can, you have a sounding board, you know, and all of us in this business, we have the same ups and downs, the same issues. And, you know, quite frankly, being able to have a sounding board with other directors and other organizations, hey, what are you doing? When are you opening? What are you requiring for staff? All of those questions became a lot easier knowing there were, 200 plus other organizations that were going through the same thing. That was a big deal for me. And I know uh, for you, uh, having that, you know, to lean on was probably incredibly helpful. So you've worked at executive director level in both the zoo and sanctuary world. What did you find different about them? How would you compare them? You know, I thought about this question a lot as, as we were waiting for this, this podcast. And some people aren't going to like my answer. I don't think there's much difference. Now, I understand that could set off a firestorm and, and I <laughs> let me explain. I really, truly believe that a reputable zoological park, we unfortunately, we get tarnished by the that three letter word zoo. You know, zoos have had its ups and downs and in, in obviously in history, as we all know, I could talk for hours on that, the good and the bad. And there are bad zoos out there. I will be the first to admit that. But at the end of the day, you know, what we do is no different than what a sanctuary does and vice versa. You know, here at Zoo Montana, the majority of our animals are rescues in the same way, shape or form. And what both of us see most often that you and I hate just as much as, as the next person are expats. You know, how many animals do both of us have that somebody thought would be a good idea to have in their backyard, as I, as I said before? You know, our, one of our grizzly bears was kept in an eight by eight dog kennel in a backyard. I mean, just mind-blowing what what people think is okay and one of our bear cubs one of our bears when it was a cub was a pet at a logging camp yeah right you know it's you know fed grape soda and fed you know i'm just ridiculous things and so at the end of the day 
we're trying to do the exact same thing that any sanctuary or animal rescue is doing. We just don't have the permit to obviously do any kind of rehab and, and what have you. Uh, but we are always there to help in terms of getting out there and rescuing and, and then getting it to the appropriate center that needs that, that has the ability to do the actual rehab. But at the end of the day, I really believe our missions are, are very similar taking care of wildlife, giving wildlife their final chance. You know, it's, it's, it's either our organizations or unfortunately euthanasia, that those are the options. And so we want to be there for those animals. Our education messaging is, is the same. You know, obviously we want to educate, you know, kids and adults alike. You and I both know that there are some kids that visit our facilities that have never seen the animals that we have even native wildlife. I mean, I was blown away when I worked in Tampa, Florida, you know, very urban city, that there were kids that we met with that have never seen a raccoon in the wild. That is mind blowing. It's sad, but it's the reality of our country. Science literacy, we all know, is at an all time low. So let's change that. And I know both of us have very similar missions in changing that. And the conservation piece, you know, uh, you know, here at Zoo Montana, we, we want to actually give real dollars to conservation efforts and zoos, you know, worldwide and sanctuaries too. I, I, I want to start lumping us closer together because we have the same missions uh, and the same idea. Now, again, are there facilities out there that are there for other reasons. Joe Exotic, one of the places we got our tigers from, the wild things in Florida, they are now closed because they were the same thing. They were exploiting wildlife. I think you're in agreement with me. Let's get rid of those. We got to get rid of those organizations. Nobody should drug an animal so somebody can get a picture with it. Those days have to end. And uh, I think uh, if we come together, and I think we're seeing that more and more. I mean, you and I have always had a relationship, but I think nationwide, you're starting to see that a little bit more, that coming together of, of sanctuaries and zoos. I can only hope that continues. Well, that education message is is such a critical part of the mission for uh, well, for both of our organizations, that's why Eden is working with the, your education people. We're doing joint projects and working with other organizations in different areas of wildlife rehabilitation, wildlife education. All of us have the same basic goals. So one, one of the issues that we had here at uh, the Yellowstone Wildlife Sanctuary was that there were there was a law in place in Montana that animals were only supposed to be transferred to an accredited facility. The only accrediting body they recognized was the AZA because when these laws were written, there were no sanctuaries here with accrediting agencies. There, there wasn't one. Now we've got GFAS, as you mentioned, the Global Federation of Animal Sanctuaries, the American Sanctuary Association, both good organizations, both have good reasons to go for their accreditation. But there's more than that, uh, more than just those two and AZA. Do you think that some accreditations are worth more than others? I do. Yeah, absolutely. I do. And, you know, I think in each of our, you know, respective industries, I think, yes, there are. So in the zoo world, I think AZA is, is cream of the crop. I really do believe that just because the standards are so rigorous, as you know, especially with GFAS, 
there's such a small percentage of institutions that are actually accredited. AZA is no different. I think it's 10%, something of like that, of all animal facilities have AZA. So I think that standard is, is high. You know, the other one in the zoo world that you'll hear a lot about is the, the Zoological Association and, um, oh, what is it? Associative of America. ZAA. Um, yeah, exactly. And and that one, I've got colleagues that, that are accredited by ZAA. I personally have some issues with the ZAA just on some of the rules and regs in terms of um, private ownership, the use of non-protective contact with elephant training, meaning, you know, free contact. Um, there's some issues that I personally have. Not everybody does, but I do. So I don't have interest in becoming a ZAA accredited institution. I feel like AZA covers what we need. Um, I would think, and, and, and certainly I, I do not want to put words in your mouth, but, you know, I think GFSA, GFAS is the leader in sanctuary accreditation personally. I think what's so great about GFAS is not only do they provide your accreditation, but they also provide so many great tools for organizations. You know, they help with, you know, coming up with financial plans and, you know, making sure you are doing the best you can and they give you those tools. And I think that's a really incredible aspect of that accrediting body. So yeah, I think there are associations that have heavier weight than others. I really do. The resources that the accrediting agencies bring to bear make a huge difference. And I really appreciate the fact that I have a personal membership to AZA, but our, our sanctuary is not accredited by AZA. We don't have GFAS accreditation. There are differences between what they do and what ASA does, but none of them seem to have problems working together, even though our sanctuary is not officially a member of AZA or of GFAS. Both organizations are willing to share their care standards, share their habitat design standards, and it's a massive help for an organization like ours to be able to look at, wow, four or five different sets of standards out there, and let's pick the most rigorous and work to comply with that. Absolutely. And, and you know, and I, I think the important piece is, is that it's one step at a time. You know, we went for 10 years without having any accrediting body. The reason is we wanted to make sure our ducks were in a row before we went for this, this accreditation. And it, it just happened to be easy for us. But I think any step forward in any accrediting body is a step in the right direction. You know, I, I want to make that clear that I don't think that just because you don't have whoever, not just not just Yellowstone animal sanctuary, but uh, that there's not what I'm trying to say here is that just because you don't have what I think is cream of the crop doesn't mean you're making great leaps and bounds. You certainly are. You know, for us, we thought about ZAA during that time period, during that period where we had nothing, um, you know, and, and I was afraid we'd be grouped into a roadside menagerie or what have you. Um, and it was it was a stressful time for us because, as you know, we're, we're all doing incredible work and we're two of the good guys. I really believe that even though we, we didn't have that accrediting body at the time, I knew I could still rely on AZA. And we were still, like you said, getting great ideas from them. We were part of their mentorship program. Um, we were still part of the species survival plan with them, even though we were not accredited. So you're right. These bodies, no matter what it is, any of them that we've talked about today, 
they're there to help. And that's the great thing. And just being associated with these organizations, even if you're not an official member, I think is obviously a step in the right direction. So I agree with you. The resources that these organizations provide are just incredibly helpful to those of us that are trying to do the best that we can. Well, thank you very much, Jeff, for participating today and, and being part of the podcast. You you really bring, I think, a lot to the table in terms of your spanning of these different worlds and having dealt with different ones. Yeah, my pleasure. And, and thanks for having me. I love talking on this subject. And certainly if, uh, if anybody has any questions, they can contact me at the zoo, director at zoomontana.org. Super simple email to remember. Let me know your thoughts. And, uh, you know, I'd love to talk through a lot of this and uh, the good that both of our organizations are doing. And, and Gary, I just want to say a kudos to you. Um, you. You and your team are, are taking this sanctuary to new heights. Um, I'm so proud of you guys. Uh, I love being in partnership with you. Um, and I just love to see the direction that you're taking that facility. And kudos to you for all you're doing and taking that sanctuary to the next level. It's awesome. Thanks, Jeff. Yes, thank you, Jeff. And thank you all for joining us on this episode of the Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem. Do you have any ideas about topics for future episodes? Questions about our past episodes? You can email podcast at yellowstonewildlife.org or leave us a text or voicemail at 406-426-1210. We'd love to hear from you and we'll do our best to include your questions in upcoming episodes. For a full archive, please visit yellowstoneecosystem.com or subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you enjoyed what you heard, please take a moment to give us a good rating. It means a lot. Video crossovers and special features can be found on our YouTube channel, Yellowstone Wildlife Sanctuary, along with behind the scenes videos, news updates, and our Experience Our Wild educational videos, and more. This episode of Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem was recorded at the Yellowstone Wildlife Sanctuary in Red Lodge, Montana, and produced by Gary Robson. Our theme music was written and performed by Justin Satterfield and recorded by Sean Keeney. Once again, Gary and I would like to thank our guests, Vernon Weir and Jeff Ewell. We hope you'll be joining us for more episodes of Yellowstone Ecosystem. Ha, 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 ha.